Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. church. Today's going to be all about that, being ready to give an answer, but doing it in respect. Dave, do you want me here? Do you need me to move right here? Is fine? Okay. Uh, You always, always need to make the tech people happy because they can do things to you. Yeah, so (laughs) as long as I'm here, it is so good to have John and Holly and Vic and, and Liz with us today. It's, or Victor, I should say. I don't know. I have a right to change your name. Um, people call me Pat, and I get angry. Look what I just did. So it's good to, good to have you guys with us um, from the wilds of Mississippi and the frozen tundra of Michigan. Uh, it is great for them to come into the rolling hills and endless traffic of Nashville, Tennessee. For those of you that do not know, uh, Nashville right now is hosting every graduation known to man, four major concerts, and I don't know what else is going on. So if you're here, you're not leaving Um, If you want to come here, we'd love to have you at the soundstage. Start now, and we can get you here. Uh, I want to let you know, this week is another one of the Welcome Home tours. I will leave right after the lesson today to head to Little Rock, but that one's not an open one. Sometimes people form small groups, and some of the people are searching. Some of the people and others are hurting. Some others are in recovery. And those small groups don't invite people in. They've got a rapport and a trust. So I'm going to meet with one of them. I, would, I met with people openly at Little Rock about six weeks ago, and I'll be back. And then Monday night is Oklahoma City. Tuesday night is Tulsa. Wednesday night is Springfield, Missouri. And actually, a local church has asked me to, they say, we'll give you rooms and you can meet there. So that's going to be fun. And then Fort Smith, Arkansas is on Thursday and then I will limp my way back home, get a hug from Cammie, and be strengthened for the next run. So if you want me to come to visit your area, we need your address. Uh, I had somebody say, well, I look on the map, and there are four people who have checked in around me. Yes, and they didn't tell us who they were. They just said, watching from, and that doesn't let me know where to drive. So if you, need a, if you want me to come see you, let us know. This is a set-up sermon. It is uh, not setting you up for failure or anything, but this is setting up a discussion we're going to have the next two weeks, Lord willing, because people need an answer. And now more than ever, people have been taught by the experiences of the last, however num- whatever number you want to put that, years, not to trust what they've been told. They've been taught that by media, but they've also been taught that by the experts, Uh, experts who tell each other, don't trust each other. Uh, We all know that if you go into court, you you can hire an expert to say pretty much what you want them to say. You can find others to do things, and so it's a battle of that. Who do you listen to? We all, during the COVID years, uh, and I'm aware it's still lurking out there, but in the COVID years, we got used to conflicting experts and conflicting data, didn't we? But we've also found that in every portion of our life. So why would we not expect people 
to have questions about what we say about God, Jesus, life, scripture, and everything. So I want to take you back to the 1960s. For some of you, this is ancient history. However, I'm amazed at how many young people have watched movies out of the 60s and 70s and 80s and quote them. So uh, cool for you. Uh, You were raised right. I can remember just very vaguely, because I was, I was just a boy, but John Lennon, in an interview, said that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. And the world blew up slowly. It was reported and put in the paper, but nobody really jumped on it until later when somebody found something to get angry about. You see, there's a problem. Way too many of us are walking around ready to be outraged. You call me the wrong name, you look at me the wrong way, you vote for the wrong thing, I don't like your clothes, boom, outrage. I don't know why you need to have outrage in your life, but people often do. But when they found this, they did blow up, and people gathered to burn Beatles records. This was the first of the great record burnings. The second was uh, when they declared disco dead, and they burned them in Chicago. That, that was quite impressive. And I actually heartily agreed with that one. But that's a a whole different subject. And if you like disco, we love you. You're wrong, but we love you. (laughs) You will get to heaven, uh, and uh, but you may be let down by the music. That's all I'm saying. I have no idea. I have no idea about the music. But people gathered. People clutched their pearls. Ministers tried to paint Lenin as the second coming of Satan. How ingrained this was when Cammy and I came back to America in the middle 80s, I went to a Christian college lectureship, because that's what you do. You know, you meet people and you learn what the new books are and as such. And the keynote speaker was standing up and using the lyrics of Beatle records to show how degraded rock and roll is. And I'm going, they haven't been together for 20 years. What? What? He was stuck. He'd found a sermon he'd liked in the 60s, and that's what he was going to do. Well, every book I've seen, except in the last couple of years, has tried to whitewash that by saying Lennon wasn't saying that. He was, say, he was disapproving that they could get big crowds, but Jesus could not. But the fact is, if you look at the entire word-for-word transcript of the interview, which is available, you show, no, he was very anti-Christianity at that age, and for most of his life, if not all. He was very convinced that rock and roll was going to replace religion because rock and roll was going to last forever. He did not foresee, therefore, disco and pop music and um, R&B and hip-hop and all of that that came after. He was convinced rock and roll was the force that was going to derail Christianity and become, uh, if we're in the 60s, a bunch of people standing on hillsides talking about or singing, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Why was he so certain? Well, first of all, you got to admit, he was a young man with way too much money, no supervision, and he liked to say shocking things. I've done the same without the too much money thing. I have often been told I need to be more supervised. Like, Cammy can't be everywhere. That's what I'm counting on. And I have said shocking things in the same way. And just a little clue here, and it's just something I've had to learn. Shocking, insulting, and snide does not equal witty. It does not equal wise. 
A lot of times I thought I was being witty and wise. I was being rude or insulting. And so I give him a pass for that. But the reason he said that they were bigger than Jesus was because he just read a book. And in the full transcript, you hear about the book, which never made the papers, I don't believe in Britain or in America. The book was written in the 1960s, and it was a best-selling book of that time. It was written by a guy named Hugh Schoenfield, and it was called The Passover Plot. Now, it was a rather complicated book about how Jesus had this intentional plot, his disciples were in on it, and some of the, the, the Jewish leaders were in on it, and it was this whole thing about you know, shifting bodies around so that it would look like he was crucified and then came back. Very complex. In fact, it even had a movie. It was so popular. It had a movie made about it in 1978 starring Donald Pleasance. It was a very convincing book if one wasn't thoroughly immersed in history, the study of culture of the day and Hebrew. It's rather like more recently, what was it, in the 90s or um, <clears throat> somewhere, maybe early 2000s, 2000s it was, where Dan Brown wrote the book, The Da Vinci Code. And people ran all over going, you see, it's all fake. They're hiding the real books. If you read the code right, you now you realize that religion is made up by men in funny robes that want to keep power over you. Do you remember those? That went on to where it spawned a whole genre. And you can still go to bookstores today and, and look into mysteries and thrillers, which is where I go when I want to give my brain something else to do rather than reading nonfiction. And you'll see reminiscent of the Da Vinci Code. And I'll put it right back. And it even said in the Da Vinci Code, it will say, these things are real in the foreword. And they weren't. But people latched on to that and they left faith and they're still gone. Eric von Doniken, back in the 70s, did pretty much the same thing. He was saying, it isn't Jesus, there were ancient, ancient astronauts. And if you want to learn more about those, you can go to the History Channel, which as far as I can tell, is almost devoid of history. Uh, and it is more and more about things that don't exist, can't exist, shouldn't exist, and never existed. But with people with weird hair, um, with titles under it, and some of them have British accents, so you have to listen. The research done in the, uh, the book, Sean Field's book, The Passover Plot, no, I want to say this emphatically, no mainstream scholar has accepted his theories, ever, for over 60 years now. Not one. He was dismissed as a crank by universities, foundations. He received no backup from any academic uh, community at all, but his book sold well. And in the interview, John Lennon said he'd been reading that book and it helped him believe that Christianity was fraudulent. And now that this book was out and the secret was out, that Christianity would shortly disappear. It reminds me once of a bumper sticker I saw. Bumper stickers, for those of you who are younger, used to be the internet. Um, it was the way that you communicated your thoughts to passers-by. But instead of saying things such as, I had fish for lunch, it would be other you know, witticisms. And one of them I saw 
was the very famous quotation from Nietzsche um, that says, God is dead. And underneath, it says, God, Nietzsche is dead. Fair enough. The, 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 the bumper sticker was trying to say, God outlives all of the crank theories. And he does. I read the book when I was 13. Somebody had given it to my father. My father had made the big mistake of putting it in his library, his scholarly books library. Well, I read all those books because, once again, I, I don't have that thing, um, a life. I read all those books. And I can remember going up to my dad and saying, well, this book was saying, and he quickly made the book disappear. It was no longer in the library, but I also remember what I read. So I can't claim that at 13 I saw all, through all of the bad reasoning, all the false conclusions Sean Field made. But I did see a lot of things that bothered me that reminded me of other books I'd read in my father's library. Books he had collected from the Jehovah's Witnesses. If you don't know, the Jehovah's Witnesses were founded by a guy named Charles Russell. Charles Russell, and after him, Judge Rutherford, he wasn't a judge, but he, Judge Rutherford, they were self-taught in Greek and Hebrew, self-taught in logic, self-taught in philosophy, and it showed, because they made terrible grade school mistakes. Your Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you to this day that it wasn't a cross, it was a torture stake, because Charles Russell looked it up in a Greek book, and that's the definition he found. He went to the wrong source for the wrong word, but now they're too embedded in it to go away. They used to preach also against any form of a church building, so they still don't build those. But they do build these little meeting houses that are not church buildings. And I'm going, you know, guys, it's every now and then just say, we were wrong. Uh, one of the biggest books was a book called Millions Now Living Shall Never Die. And it was written in the 40s, so pretty much not happening. They built a, a massive man, mansion for Jesus to return for George, uh, and by the way, because he's the prince of a guy, Judge Rutherford uh, said, I'll live in it till he gets back. And he died, and they lost about a third of their worldwide membership in the 1970s when they said Jesus is coming back in the 1970s and he didn't show. But now they have regathered, and I go back and I'm looking, we have a skyscraper here, but it's built on cobwebs. All of these things don't work. They got away with it in the early 1900s. You can't do that today. Because if you go, now this word means this, everybody has all of the scholarship of humanity at their fingertips or in their back pocket. They can check it, double check it, triple check it. So if you've wondered why we're not getting nearly as many interesting cults as we used to, the internet has done that. Now it's also caused damage, we all understand that. But that's the point. We have experts, we have phones, we have laptops. We got the data. It won't work. And by the way, they've recalled, all, they get all those old books back they can. But um, eh, they're still out there. I can still remember men coming on our porch, knocking on the door. And my father said, come on, Patrick. And I don't know, you know we, we just went. <laughs> so like chihuahuas, you know, all right, here we go. Uh, so I'm, I go stand on the front porch and... These men started 
talking to us about the, you know, about the real Bible they had, and they were from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And by the way, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, we love you. You just need to understand your history like we all need to understand our history and deal with it. You know, churches of Christ do not have a nice history when it comes to race relations. We got to deal with that. We have a divisive thing in our nature. We have to understand that so we can avoid it. Well, the men on the porch were saying, well, this, our Bible is more accurate because it is, um, it is written, you know, more original and we even have pictures of the, of the manuscripts in there, which, you know, fair enough, they did. And so God asked, uh, my, my dad asked them, well, why when Jesus is called a God in your Bible, it doesn't have a little g? And they said, because that's the way it was done in the old, you know, in the originals. And my dad looked at me, I already knew that wasn't true. It was 13, I'd read and so he opened them up and he said, these are all capitals, unseals. There weren't little letters for another three to 500 years. Got a little quiet. And one of them got a little smart alecky, which is not smart around my dad, because some people disappeared. We never heard from them again. <laughs> and was saying, well, if you understood the Hebrew, and my father played a little bluff. Now, my dad never touched cards because he knew the cards could lead to dancing. So, but it was a good bluff. He said, oh, so you know the languages. Well, why don't we do the rest of this conversation? You know, I'll do the Hebrew and my son will do the Greek. I don't know Greek. So I'm standing there thinking, I better learn right now. And they were going, well, no, no. And it was, it was one of these things of, we have these things. But they came up across somebody who knew something different. Now we have access all data is not the same. And it breaks my heart when I see it out of science, media, politicians, whatever. They'll say, here's the data. And I'm going, oh, where, what are your sources here? Because as the old saying goes, figures don't lie, but liars figure. You'd better know your sources. And you'd better know their sources. The whole Monday morning motif, back it up. Who told them? Who told them? trace this down. And we, will, we look at the evidence and the data. We also have to look to see who compiled it. Every so often, you'll hear somebody hold up a vitamin or a medicine, and they'll say, studies show this does all these wonderful things. And then underneath, it'll say, these statements have not been approved by the FDA and are not meant to treat any condition or disease, except that's what the guy's talking about. Check the data. I had one lady go, this has been proven by 40 studies. And I said, who funded the studies? Got real quiet in the room. She didn't know. I said, we can find out. We did. It was the company that was selling it. There you go. That's all you need to know. We do this with fear. Uh, the um, first George Bush's, um, what do you call it, attorney general of the United States stood up and warned that there are 50,000 pedophiles online at any time. And people took that, Wall Street Journal did, New York Times did it, Washington Post, LA Times, and this whole 50, there are 50,000, no, we have no way of knowing. When they log on, there's not a ding, there's no way to count this. And so whenever we traced the number, which we did, we found out it was in a brochure that was mailed to parents' homes by a company that made internet filtering software. They made up the number. There might be 50,000. There might be 500,000. There might be three. That's the point. Check your sources. And I could give you hundreds, literally, of examples how data has been misrepresented and misused 
And so when we come across somebody who's skeptic about God, prayer, Jesus, scripture, whatever, I can see why, can't you? And then you see it the abuses Christians have done over the years. I mean, when Victor got up to talk about giving, there was none of this. If you don't give, God's going to kill Patrick. You know, but we, we, we've heard that heavily, not about me. But standing up saying, God told me if you, we don't get this much, he's going to call me home with great weeping. Really? That's God's fundraising thing now? Um, we've really given God a bad reputation. So we'd better be ready with an answer. So we come to the theme for today and for the next two Sundays. Is there evidence that Jesus even ever existed? And if so, is there evidence that the man that existed was divine? Well, we've had a few weeks here where we had hard looks at the Bible and how we read them. I know they were hard because they were hard for me to write. They were hard for me to speak. They may have been hard for you to hear. And the emails I got after indicated that it was a struggle for some. And I get that. But until the 1800s, we didn't have huge portions of Christianity claiming that God dictated every word, every single word of Scripture. Remember, even the men that selected, and it was men, God admit it, who selected the books for our Bible, compiled and made it official, did not consider these books as the literal words of God. For example, in Scripture, it talks about you have bishops over every congregation, but there were bishops over nations that chose the book. And they, or call no man your father, they chose that one too. They didn't feel that it was necessary to say this is our avatar for God. If you don't know what that term means, uh, for example, in Islam, uh, the Quran is an avatar of God. It, the presence of Allah is in the very words. Therefore, any translation you've read, I don't read a word of Arabic, I've read it in English, they will say, well, then you have not read the Quran. You have to only do this. And then, by the way, there are many forms of Arabic, uh, Syria, Egyptian, and alike, that they cannot understand each other a bit, but they all read the same form of Arabic in the Quran. No changes. You know, that's their rule. And so if you tear a page out or if you drop it, that is an offense against God. Well, we kind of do that whenever we make our Bible so holy that we can't see God. And so, yeah, fundamentalist movements of the 1800s and 1900s were loud, powerful, and they had good timing because they came along in the era of easy printing, radio, and then TV. Do you remember TV preachers? Took, it was kind of like Saturday morning cartoons. You know, Saturday morning, you're going to have cartoons. Kids, you missed that. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. And then Sunday, you knew it was going to be religious shows all the way into the afternoon. And then they were going to show really old, silly movies about Hercules and Tarzan or celebrities bowling. I saw that once. You can't unsee that. <laughs> but what happened was we tended to mythologize our past then and our past theology. And we acted like this is the way it's always been. And no, it wasn't. We've always supposed to have been wrestling with Scripture. We see the differences in the stories between the stories in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and those in First and Second Chronicles. We see the ever-conflicting and ever-changing rules on slavery, uh, on the treatment of, of the foreigners, of Moabites and Ammonites, and so much more. Well, then the question comes up, a question which I am asked on a fairly regular basis. They'll say, Patrick, you are dead honest when you look at Scripture. You don't mind being harsh with it. You don't mind being harsh with us and our history. Well, then, if I don't believe this, then why would I believe in Jesus at all? You ever heard that? I have. Well, 
If there are errors here, are there errors in the Gospels? If there are errors in the Gospels, well, then is Jesus divine? Well, there, there is one short thing, and I did a whole Monday morning message on this perhaps a year ago, so let me do this quickly. Truth and facts are not the same thing. For example, um, Shakespeare. Let's do Romeo and Juliet, which is an incredibly disturbing play if you really understand the ages of the people involved. You know, two, two kids, about 13, 14, maybe, 11, uh, maybe 12, fall in love, uh, can't be together, so they kill themselves. Hope you had a great night, kids. But it teaches great truths about family combat, about how it stifles love, how it leads to disaster. So it, Romeo and Juliet is not a fact, but it is a truth. Do you understand what that means? So when Jesus says, I am the vine and ye are the branches, is that a fact? No, but it's a truth. You're not a plant, but he is using a phrase, a metaphor, a story to illustrate a truth. So is Jesus a truth or is he fact? Now, this series is going to continue, but I need to give you a spoiler alert here. I'm known to question and unravel anything I grab a hold of. As I've said many times, my wife says, if I see a thread, someone's losing a sweater. Yeah, fair enough. But here's spoiler alert. I am here today as a minister of the gospel of Christ. I've given my life to Jesus and to speaking of him. That should give you a hint where I'm going to fall down on this question. So don't be too nervous yet. I will give you reasons to be nervous other times you don't have a reason to be nervous yet unless you've denied that Jesus ever existed now we need to give credit always we give credit to whom credit is due we're going to have a song come up um, here in the next few weeks that we got permission to play and we we will give credit to who wrote it to you know where you can get it online and the like because we do that here we're very, uh, Kirsten helps us stay very very scrupulous with copyrights and one of the many things she does so well I rely on a lot of books, and one of them I chose to use rather extensively for the next two weeks in particular is written by an agnostic slash atheist. It's really according to where you catch him, whether Bart Ehrman is an agnostic or an atheist. He grew up a very, very conservative religious tradition and then went to study and kind of got blown away by some things, and then he had difficulties with pain. So people, there's a reason why people are where they are. But he wrote a book several years back called, Did Jesus Exist? And the reason I want to use that is because Bart Ehrman is a scholar with impeccable qualifications, even if you never agree with anything he says. He has a very easy writing star, uh, style. rather. He has um, a good sense of humor that comes through, very meticulous, and also he's not on my side. I like to read books that don't just confirm what I already thought. Because where two people always agree about everything, one of them is unnecessary. You need the differences. He doesn't have a dog in this fight either. In fact, he wrote that book in 2012 in response to a book very similar to Hugh Schoenfeld's The Passover Plot that was published, like Ehrman's book, in 2012. By the way, he also wrote a book debunking the entire Da Vinci Code nonsense. So, you know, he's, he's done some good stuff. Robert Price wrote a book in 2012 called The Christ Myth 
theory and its problems. I'll say that again. Paul should not have been there. The Christ myth theory and its problems. Ehrman, being a highly credentialed expert in the history of the manuscripts and the New Testament and uh, the history of the time, was, what? So he dug deeper, and as he wrote, he was appalled that anyone would ever write a statement like that. He says, it is as stunning. Here's a quote, which a couple of us in the room, Kirsten, will appreciate. He said, it was as stunning as finding out that most students' knowledge of the Middle Ages came entirely from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (laughs) So that's about the level. I mean, that's pretty stunning for one scholar to go up against another. But as we're going to follow the hard work that Ehrman and many others have done, we're going to take our time with this. Atheism is soaring. Atheism and agnosticism are the fastest growing religions in America. They have pretty much taken the continent of Europe. We'd better be ready. We'd better be ready for, to respond. Dissatisfaction with brick and mortar churches is rising. Organized religion is failing. Someone asked me if I was part of organized religion. I said, I'm not really sure you could call it organized. I'm religious, but it seems to be more of a wild ride the Spirit has us on. But Jesus said something which still haunts me to this day. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Now, I believe he was probably talking about the end of time where he forgives us, but it bothers me that after 2,000 years, we're still, we're lifting up something which isn't drawing people. Maybe our own ideas, our own budgets, our own brick and mortars, our own denominations. I don't really know. How could I know? But um, I think we're lifting up something other than Jesus because we're not making the impact we should have. Sifting the evidence will take some time. And our 30 to 40 minutes format on Sundays will make it seem like I'm just dribbling out the information. And you're not going to get much at all today, frankly, because we're just setting it up. But I want my biases on the table. I want everybody to understand I'm not coming to you as a neutral investigator of these facts. For I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. I believe that he was both human and divine, and I see no contradiction there. I believe his life and teaching are models for our lives and our teachings. I believe his death defeated death, the devil, sin, and removed the stain of all of our sins. And I believe that his resurrection on the third day sealed Satan's fate and proved God's determination to win this battle I also believe that he intercedes for us today, that he is here with us, along with the Father and along with the Holy Spirit. And I believe that at the end of all things, we will be in heaven. That's my biases. They are on the table. I I will talk to anybody about any subject if they will put theirs on the table too. No hidden agendas here. Why do I believe all of this stuff? The evidence. The older versions had it right in Hebrews 11. Some of the newer ones, and they don't mean to weaken it. I think they just tried to modernize it and they they missed it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. So when a Mormon comes on my porch and says, and I ask, how can I know your book is true? And they say, because it's a canned answer. You must pray 
until you feel a burning in your bosom and that will show you it is true. No, I'm sorry. Burning bosoms can, that can happen a lot of ways. I, I had nachos at the Nashville soccer game last night. <laughs> and I'm not making fun of the religion. I'm saying that's not evidence. I need, what is the substance? What is the evidence? And by the way, I have people come at me that way every day. Sometimes I get a day off, but every day. And you know what? They have the right to. We are, as was read to us, we have to be ready to give an answer. What's your evidence? What's your substance? A quote from Ehrman. <clears throat> there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man known to be a preacher uh, and teacher who was crucified in Jerusalem during the reign of the Roman emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. This is the view of nearly every trained scholar on the planet. Wow. Well, let's speak plainly. The first writers to claim that Jesus did not exist didn't even write until the 1800s. And the first scholar to say he didn't exist didn't write until 1840. His name was Bruno Bauer. Bauer lost his job at the University of Bonn in Germany after writing books questioning Jesus' existence, not because the University of Bonn is Christian, far from it. It was a completely secular school. But because his, his scholarship was so sloppy and his conclusions were so unsupported that they decided they could not have him there. It wasn't until the year 1900, right on the dot, nice round number, another writer wrote a major book claiming that Jesus didn't exist, J.M. Robertson. And his book was based on a spotty understanding of history and a lot of philosophy, but his evidence was missing. He offers no evidence. And you can have evidence of absence. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. You, you can prove holes in the, th but there was nothing there. So not much of anything. And that was published for a long time. Schoenfeld's book, Sean Field's book, um, caused quite a stir, but it passed on. I'm, I'm just going to do, by the way, I know 99.99% you know, .99 of our people are not at the sound stage. But at the sound stage, has anybody read the Passover plot? Really? I really thought we'd get one. Have you heard of it? Wow, I'm the only one here. And I don't raise my hands much because that can lead to hor horrible, charismatic joy. <laughs> and this is my face. And so I want to keep it perfectly devoid of all emotion. I'm the, as a, the man of a thousand face. About the year 2000, though, things have changed since then. Very popular, really interesting writers came, became known as the New Atheist. Richard Dawkins, Daniel Demet, Sam Harris, Chris Hitchens. All of them have taken repeated swings at the existence of Jesus and God and Christians. And, but none of them, and this is important if you've read their books, Sam Harris is a good-looking guy, an amazing speaker, and his books, God is Not Good, and all these other atheist books are easy to read, and, and, and they're almost page-turners. Dawkins gets his facts screwed up a lot, but he's a super smart guy in his field. 
Daniel Dimmitt, great philosopher. Yeah, uh, Christopher Hitchens, more scholarly uh, linguist, literature. Not a one of them are trained in history, archaeology, ancient languages, no relevant field. And if, you know, you can have a, well, I'll put it this way. There were three of us were friends that were playing. One had a doctor of business administration. I had a doctor in brain stuff. And another guy was a judge. And whenever we were about to tee off on the golf course, here comes out somebody from the front saying, uh, a single saying, listen, uh, they, they want to uh, attach me to your group. And I, we said, sure, come along in. We do that as evangelism. Because, you know, eventually we'll talk, we'll talk, and then say, he, see, here's a water hazard. What doth hinder you? Well, it hasn't worked yet. Um, <clears throat> he was introduced by the guy that, that did the scheduling. He said, this is Dr. Mead, this is Dr. This, and this judge. And he goes, whoa, man, I'm in the right place if I get a heart attack. And we looked at each other and went, no, you're not. None of us are MDs. None of us are DOs. If you have one, I'll ask you how you're feeling about it. If it brings up any childhood memories you'd like to get off your chest, he'll ask you, how is your, are your finances in order? And this is just a judge. He's not going to help. Where are your qualifications? You know, that scene that everybody, you know, think, you're on a plane, something happens. So, is there a doctor here? I know somebody's going, I'm a doctor of English literature. That's impressive, but unhelpful. And so when I, I read books written by atheists that challenge things in archaeology, history, theology, and languages, and realize they have zero qualifications, I wonder how many other people notice that. Somebody's got to say it. Another quote about all of this, and we're wrapping it up here, all the popular literature questioning the existence of Jesus. By the way, there is another whole group that says, Oh, we know what he did as a kid. He went all over places and he was really a Hindu or whatever. Seriously. The New Age loves the missing years of Jesus. Quote, these sensationalist books may have a reading public. They are, after all, written to be read. But if scholars take note of them at all, it is simply out of amazement that such inaccurate and poorly researched publications could ever see the published light of day. And yet we have people who will believe it because somebody tweeted something. That's what we're up against. We have facts. They will present their feelings. This is not going to be an easy job. But what will be easy is after the next two Sundays for you to say, oh, there's no question. Jesus existed. And we have the proof. Proof perhaps you've never heard about before. So next week... We'll start with a quick look at a couple of books um, on the subject. But the more I read books questioning Jesus and the more I, chest, I check their data, like the Jesus Seminar, which was a really big thing for several years, the more I just go, you know, this, this doesn't work in real science. It doesn't at all. My, my first work was in psychology. I'm not anti-psychology. Please understand, psychologists think this is funny too. That the difference between an engineer and a psychologist is if a psychologist built a rocket and threw the switch and nothing happened, they would say, it's being resistant. It's the rocket's fault. 
Psychology is a very malleable, soft science. Engineering, but you can't get away with that. So we're going to look at facts on the ground. In the meantime, know this. You have no reason. You who put your faith in Jesus have no reason to be concerned. None. He existed. He is the Lord. And I think we can prove it. So hang on. Buckle up. 